You are listening to a Core Awareness Seminar by Liz Cook. Her website is www.coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E awareness.com. Please note that Core Awareness is a trademark signature of Liz Cook, her workshops, seminars, books, and CDs. The information presented in the seminar is in no way intended as a substitute for receiving professional medical care. The design and purpose of the seminar is to provide information and to simply educate. The author and publisher shall have neither liability nor responsibility to any person or entity with respect to any loss, damage, or injury caused or alleged to be caused directly or indirectly by the information, suggestions, explorations, or exercises contained within the seminar or written in response to the seminar. The author is not a medical authority, and she is not qualified to diagnose or prescribe any therapy. The information is simply her personal opinion. Please seek medical care for whatever condition you may have. So welcome, everybody. This is Liz Cook. And um, I'm hosting this teleseminar as part of my newsletter from my website, coreawareness.com. That's C-O-R-E, awareness.com. And most of you know me, but I'm the author of the SOAS book and Core Awareness, Enhancing Yoga, Pilates, Exercise, and Dance, um, Unraveling Scoliosis CD, and a new CD called SOAS and Back Pain. And... um, I like to do these teleseminars as a way to connect with people and also further your education about the iliopsoas muscle. And so before I begin and introduce uh, Esther to you, I, I wanted to just make a connection of why I think this is particularly uh, important. In all my workshops, I spend a lot of time educating people about some very simple uh, ways of of being in their body and in movement and in their cars and on their uh, desk stools or seats. And that everyday movement plays a big part in a healthy, responsive, supple, and dynamic psoas. And unfortunately, the chairs and many of the things that we use in our, our social behavior are things that actually undermine the health and vitality of the psoas. So we talk a lot about chairs. We talk a lot about sitting. And we and I demonstrated in class, and we spend time getting on our tuberosities and what it entails to actually sit on your tuberosities, which then gives you a base to your core, which frees the iliopsoas muscle. So it's a very simple concept. Finding your... Uh, Tuberosities is fairly simple, but actually learning the sensory awareness of what it feels like to actually sit on your tuberosities and and be able to begin to feel the rebound that happens through the core, both through the feet and through the pelvic floor, and the buoyancy that exists there is... um, can be tricky for some people. The the habitual need to keep that coccyx tipped under or tucked between the legs, uh, the rolled spine is really habitual from sitting both in uh, typical folding chairs, uh, car seats are, are slanted back. Any chair that's slanted back or has a bucket seat tends to undermine the skeletal uh, support, uh, the normal healthy skeletal alignment. So when I was handed a book um, when I was in Minneapolis last year, uh, I just I got so excited I couldn't help myself. You know, I was just like thrilled because I do get handed many books or I get to see many books, and not too many of them thrill me. But this book was just gloriously full of healthy, vital-looking human beings all over the world, which particularly really intrigued me. And then fabulous, fabulous photographs and images and diagrams of what I teach. And it was like, oh, my God, here it is. Somebody has done all this work uh, for me. How amazing. But I didn't see my name anywhere in the book. So I was kind of amazed um, that somebody had done it for themselves and done it for you and for everyone else. And it was like, you know, this person may or may not know me, but, wow, they're on the same track I am. 
So I was thrilled, and when I got to uh, talk to Esther and she accepted my invitation, I was thrilled even further. She happens to also live only about 45 minutes away from me on the other side of the hill, as we call it, through the Santa Cruz Mountains. So she's in the Palo Alto area, and I'm in a small town called Felton, and we're literally uh, very, very close to each other. So, um, Esther uh, Gokhale, I welcome you very much to the teleseminar. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm delighted to join you. And Esther is the uh, author of Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Black, Remember When It Didn't Hurt. And you have a website as well, Esther. And why don't you tell people what your, your website is? Uh, my website is wellstackedback.com, and that refers to the posture component of the work we do. And we teach courses, and we have our Eight Steps to Pain-Free Back book, and we have yoga classes and dance classes and acupuncture and various things to help people heal. And on your book cover, it says, The Greatest Contribution Ever Made to Non-Surgical Back Pain Treatment. And this was a quote by Helen Barkin, who's an MD and a PhD in neurology at the Mayo Clinic. So how did how did Dr. Barkin hear about your work? Um, she is very open to alternative ways of healing. So in particular, acupuncture. And her mother is also an MD and has has um, practiced acupuncture for many years. So she has an openness that is thankfully increasingly common among MDs. And so she's just, she was just very impressed and very generous in her quote. Um, and you actually and have many so have MDs, many MDs. Supporting, yeah. supporting this book. Um, so it's you have true. worked with their clients. Is that how they get to know about you? You know, we have more than 50 MDs who have actually taken our course themselves. You know, wow. as you know, MDs get into trouble too, you know, and they suffer like other people for there not being very good options for treating back pain and carpal tunnel syndrome and so on. So I have surgeons and physical medicine doctors and internal medicine doctors um, come to our clinic. They hear from their clients that this is something special and some of them need it for themselves. And it's it's only six sessions um, in the course. So it's not a huge investment. Even busy as they are, they can afford one and a half hours a week for six sessions. And so they are they are very impressed when they take my class and because the results even from the first lesson are striking you know i teach people to stretch sit and stretch lie which is basically learning to put the back in traction as you sit and as you lie down and once you've learned the technique you know it takes only 2 seconds to implement and then you get potentially 8 hours of benefit and so that's something you know that's a lot of bang for the buck and physicians yeah. are busy appreciate that i'd like to um i'd like to help maybe define a little more about what you call uh Sit, uh, sitting and uh, lying traction. Would you say something more sure. about that? What, Absolutely. What so stretch sitting is a technique I start people out with because a lot of people sit long hours, either at work or in their cars or watching TV. And, you know, we blame a lot of things on sitting. We blame our sedentary lifestyle for various aches and pains that happen. And with a little bit of modification, you know, that same act of sitting could be a therapeutic measure. It could actually be a stretch. So the way I teach people to do this is to kind of curve forward with their ribcage as though up and over a bar that's at chest height. And then they use their arms to gr grasp the chair someplace and push down on it so as to elongate their backs. So now they've got extra length in their back. They've got a gentle traction going. And then they glue themselves 
back. They lean back while they're still in this lengthened state. And then they hitch themselves to the backrest. And the lower part of their back is then in traction. So they release the push with their arms. They just relax. But because of friction between their back or their shirt and the car seat, they're actually actually remain tractioned. So it's immediately comfortable. It's a gentle stretch, and it decompresses you know, all the discs and the nerves that exit between the pairs of vertebrae, and it stretches the muscles out and encourages good circulation. So it does all kinds of good things. And it's only about one... the head. What, what happens about the, the head? Yeah, um, what happens? Because I, I just tried. I was following your directions, and I noticed... I noticed that my head has various places it could land. Right. So when while you're doing the action, while you're pushing up, it tends to go forward. But once you're hitched, you want to unfurl your back and bring your head back into alignment where it was. If you happen to have a headrest, as is the case with, for example, a car seat, then you can actually elongate the back of your neck and glue it as well to the back, to the headrest. And then you get a little traction going in your neck as well. So then you've got traction in your low back, and you've got traction in your neck, and everything is getting benefit throughout the spine. But if you don't have a headrest, you can just gently grasp a whole bunch of hair at the back of your skull, and then gently pull back and up so as to elongate the back of the neck. Not 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 in a very aggressive way, but just a little stretch. And then let it go and don't um, hold it there. I always tell people not to get hung up on what they consider to be the correct position. You know, it's, 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 it's a drift that we want to encourage, you know. So you gently pull and then you let go. And if your head doesn't want to stay in that place for, for the current time, that's fine. It can do something in between what it's used to doing and what's ideal. And as long as we keep giving it, you know, these little stretches and encouragements to go to where it truly belongs, eventually it'll, 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 lead, it'll land there. One of the things I notice in your book is beautiful, beautiful pictures of people around the world, and many of them are are people who live a more, uh, I would say, natural native life. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking at a woman uh, under your uh, chapter of stretch sitting, um, yeah. and and it's the first picture, and and uh, she's Afro American or Afro Afro, she's Afro. African. I don't know why I don't, I'm not reading where oh, she's yeah, from. African, but she's African, yeah. Africa, yeah. And she just has this incredibly beautiful sense of rest of her head on yeah. her spine. And so one of the things I find helpful, especially for people who are visual learners, is to look at your book because it's uh, just a delicious, um, uh, uh, m- just a delicious meal of images of people who have a natural sense of spine. So you begin to not have to just look around what's around you to look for what what is it what does a natural spine look like? You can go to the book and find some incredibly colored photographs of showing people in a more relaxed state and you go it's almost like your body knows it. It's almost like oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, okay, you know. It's a kind yeah, of yeah. a visceral response to it's looking true. at the Mm-hmm. People are telling like, me that they have my book out on their coffee tables and that their guests are drawn to the book and like to look at the images and also children. Like I'm finding that people leave the book around for their teenage children or their younger children to leaf through because like you say, we are all visual learners and to some degree and children especially so. And so having having the images available to them gives them something healthy to mimic. You know, whether we know it or not, we are copying everything that's around. And it's, you know, these days, most of what's around isn't that healthy. And so having um, having a set of images, either on the walls or in sculptures or in a coffee table book um, 
is very helpful for the young crowd and for the the, the child and the rest of us. So your your um, let's talk about your uh, stretching on your back because the image yeah. that's in chapter two is of a baby and that baby is resting on its back sleeping and it looks so deeply relaxed. Relaxed. That's my third baby, actually. By that that's point, your baby. That's oh. my third baby. <laughs> I I fist through the family album for when I was putting my book together. And um, by the time I had my third child, I was clued in to what constitutes good constitutes good posture. And so we did, a, I dare say, a good job of nurturing that in her. You know, we held her really well. And so in that book, in that chapter, you see her lying on her back, and she is the picture of peacefulness. It's true. And I point out to people that her back is rather straight, elongated, and then her behind, her little butt sticks back. You know, it is not flat with the with the um, bed. It is not her pelvis is not tucked. Her pelvis, you know, is anteverted so that her her little tailbone, her and her sacrum, slants backwards. So I describe to people a natural J-shaped spine that I encourage them to cultivate, and she she shows that very well in that sleeping picture. And the way I get people, I, I teach people to achieve that is to actually bend their knees and then hoist their upper bodies onto their elbows, and then they dig in to the bed, and they think about just the next vertebra that they're lying down. So they dig in, and the next vertebra comes down onto the bed, and they dig in some more in the next vertebra. So they're sort of maximizing the space between every pair of vertebra. So each vertebra comes down, unrolls onto the bed, somewhat tractor tread like, and then that all, and then they keep unrolling, and then that maximizes the length of the spine. And because of that additional length as they sleep, the discs are decompressed, they can hydrate, they can mend themselves. The bones are separated in the spine, so there isn't, you know, arthri- there aren't arthritic processes happening. The nerves that exit between the pairs of vertebrae are not compressed, so they can function normally and resolve any inflammation they may have had from being jammed. Um, and the muscles get used to this longer resting length. And so when I teach my course, I actually measure people's height at the beginning and at the end of the course. And almost everybody grows. Sometimes it's half an inch, um, and the rec- sometimes it's a third of an inch. The average is about a third of an inch, and the record is an inch and a quarter. Wow, and that's, that's just bad. over six weeks. Isn't that cool? I want to... I wanna... You, you used a word that I use a lot in teaching. One of the things that I teach people about the iliopsoas is how to hydrate. That people don't have a um, a um, weak psoas muscle. They have a dry and a exhausted psoas muscle. And so the, exhaust, the exhaustion in the psoas muscle um, and its use as a compensatory Tory uh, muscle as a way to support that spine that's that's not supporting itself that can't feel gravity moving through it is that it begins to function a little bit like a ligament and in so doing it dries and so a lot of my work with uh, the psoas is to create a supple dynamic juicy core and so I'd like to hear a little more about why you feel that these positions by by having a little traction on the spine, by opening up those vertebrae in a very natural, uh, non-forceful way, allows hydration to take place. I think, you know, the discs behave a little bit like sponges. And if they're not squeezed dry, they will naturally absorb um, fluids into, you know, that is their natural state, to be hydrated. So 
it's it's more a question of you know why do people get desiccated discs and and dehydrated discs and it's because there are all these natural unnatural pressures on the discs because we have unnatural curves and we um, tighten up our muscles and squeeze all our um, vertebrae too close together um so yeah i think and the the psoas grows out of these vertebrae, and 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 it's a multi-joint muscle, so it can contract or release at any of its so-called insertions. Uh, I don't use the word insertion because I don't feel like we were put together, so nobody inserted the muscle. The muscle grew out of the spine, and and it's growing out of the spine. It's very responsive to the spine. So when the spine is in these very natural positions, and I'm looking at Chapter 3, Stack Sitting, and I adore your little daughter sitting there because when I see that, that's... That's sitting, and I'd love for you to talk about the pelvis because I am constantly asking people to uncurl their tail and yeah. to allow it to be responsive. And and so many exercise and fitness programs tuck the tail in hopes of protecting the spine. What do, what do you feel about that? How do you see that? Oh, I'm t- it's so refreshing to hear someone talk the same language I do. Um, people have taken, our culture has taken a, a wrong turn, and it has been a dramatically destructive wrong turn when we started tucking the pelvis. And I think it started as a fashion statement around World War One, where in the flapper era and so on, it became fashionable to tuck the pelvis and kind of press the pelvis forward, um, sort of leading in the runway model style. And, you know, all these uh, dresses that are flat-backed um, became, came into fashion. So I think that was part of the origin. At about the same time, the furniture changed shape. So, for example, the Mies van der Rohe chair that was dem- um, showed in the World Fair in Barcelona in 1929 is all about tucking the pelvis. And it came to connote... Uh, casualness and ease, and the old old classical posture got reframed as being rigid and passe. And so I think that's one of the unfortunate things that happened, and we sort of stayed with that ever since. Now, the other contributor is that we've, we've lost our kinesthetic tradition in our culture. We no longer live with our grandparents and our great-grandparents and all in the same village and our grand-aunts and uncles. And and so people are pretty much improvising. Like when you have a child and you're somewhere in the middle of the country, far away from your parents and grandparents and so on, and not really close to the kind of people who might inform how you carry that child, um, so what you do is you improvise, you know, you, you're, it's one person's wisdom instead of it being millennia, you know, wisdom from the millennia that gets passed down um, about how you handle a child. And I think that's where it starts, you know, when the children are very young, their neural pathways are getting set, and if they are carried poorly, then that is what they learn, um, constitutes sitting. And then they extrapolate, they take that into this classroom and then into their workplace and into their lives. And this is the unfortunate. And then, you know, so they they don't have a good base that's been passed down. And then there's the fashion problem where the, all the chairs are shaped wrong and the clothing is not fashioned right. And so we just reinforce. And now we've really lost our way because not only are we um, doing things that are detrimental within our bodies and we've lost sight, um, you know, in terms of fashion and, and furniture, but even our medical professionals have sort of hopped on the same wagon, you know, just it's sort of the, the sway of the culture where what's average gets reinterpreted as what's normal and even ideal. So, you know, now that everybody has an S-shaped curved spine and sways in their back and so on, we have begun to think that that's normal. 
know, and our anatomy books show this very different um, spinal structure than used to be considered normal. You know, on on an early page in my book, I show two spines, and one is taken from an anatomy book published in 1990 that is an S-shaped curve spine. That is what we consider normal today. And then the other one is taken from an anatomy book published in 1911, and it is radically different. And that is, it, it's more J-shaped than S-shaped. And that is what I consider to be a truly normal shape in the spine. But, you know, that's not what we're practicing. That's not what we find in our furniture and so on. That's very interesting. I, yes, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. And I, and one of the things that I see happen uh, for people is they often go in the totally other direction. So the, the extreme of the uh, severe S shape, is, as you might say, from the 1990s, is the military back, the loss of curves mm-hmm. in the spine, from also tucking. Because True. the tucking under can also pull that out. And so um, uh, the the resiliency of the spine, I know the spine itself um, is is more like a fish than a mm-hmm. rod or, um, or, you know, or so... But what I'm looking at in looking at comparison of the two pictures is one of the things I notice is the difference of the lumbar spine and the way the discs interact with each other and whether they're stacked or they're splayed. Yeah, isn't it interesting? Because those discs in the upper lumbar area, L1, L2, all the way to L4, are are cylindrical discs. They are shaped like little slices of sausage. And so if you look at the 1911 spine, you see little cylindrical disc spaces which fit the discs perfectly, you know, a perfect fit. But if you look at the 1990 shape, there are all these little wedge shapes. And it makes no sense that a cylindrical disc would have to fit into a wedge-shaped space. You know, that just puts a lot of pressure on, the, on one part, portion of the disc and causes it not only to dehydrate, but also to wear and tear, and it causes the contents to kind of press against the external fibrous material of the disc. Of the, and so then you get bulging discs and, if you're, and, if, and maybe even herniated discs, a ruptured discs. So it, it really doesn't make very good sense, that S-shaped curve. Now, at the very bottom of the spine, at L5-S1, the last disc, that one is wedge-shaped. That one evolved to become wedge-shaped when we went from being four-legged creatures to becoming two-legged creatures. And that was a very long time ago. That was five and a half million years ago. So we've had plenty of time to adapt to our upright stance. Um, And that wedge-shaped disc now does not want to be squished by tucking the pelvis. Does not, you know, that what that does is it squishes the wedge-shaped disc back into a cylindrical ah. state, mm. and it, it doesn't fit. Yeah, it 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 puts a lot of pressure, and that is a disc that gets into trouble a lot in our culture. That's where I'm coming from. You know, originally I had trouble with L5 S1, and. Um, a lot of people do, and I think it's because we tuck our pelvises and we're taught to do that, and that just doesn't help that disc. Now, I find that many people get a lot of relief by doing just what you teach people about stack sitting. Um, I teach the same, basically, maybe a little different words, but I teach the same idea, and I do the exact same thing by actually literally pulling the gluteus maximus out of the way so you can feel the sits bounds. You can, yep. you can you can allow that uh, sacrum, that coccyx to come out uh, of that tucked position and start to really feel the connection of sitting. And I'm curious, um, one of the things, the feedback I often hear at first is how awkward people feel. They feel like their butt's way out behind them. They, they can't, almost can't believe I'm asking them to do that. And yet, 
the other thing they notice when they explore with both feet on the floor and they can move back and forth kind of like they're rocking on a rocking chair a little bit, swaying, they can feel how more supple and, and responsive their core is and specifically their psoas is. They can feel that it's no longer literally holding them from falling back because that's what is actually happening for many people. And I'm curious um, how you work with that or what, what cues, anything else you'd like to tell people about what you understand about starting to move that coccyx uh, in a different and new way. Well, one thing, when I'm teaching, I usually start with teaching people stretch sitting. So they've had one lesson to get used to weird feelings because I, I tell people it's par for the course that they're going to have feelings of weird, you know, that it just feels weird, but it mustn't feel weird and uncomfortable. Weird and um, comfortable is okay. Um, weird and not uncomfortable is also okay. But weird but uncomfortable is not okay. So they get used to, you know, weird stuff, like just being longer in the back already feels weird. And then I teach them the shoulder roll and I teach them kidney bean shaped feet, which all connects. And so they've already had a little bit of exposure before I teach them an antiverted pelvis and how to bring their sits bones, you know, um, under them um, instead of out in front. Um, and how I, I teach them how to pull the buttock flesh back and so on. And you're right, it feels odd to people, but the comfort of being able to be upright effortlessly is pretty striking to most people. Um, so that, that overrides this feeling of awkwardness. You know, they feel awkward, the butt is out behind them, but lo and behold, they are upright. It's not taking work. And then I teach them when they breathe that, you know, all the muscles are relaxed in their back so that their back can actually be moving up and down as they breathe. And that is a very, it's like a natural massage for the whole spine. And that feels really good to people. So, you know, I... I, I, One of the things I noticed with the images are wonderful images of children in natural positions. And um, I know that with my awareness of the psoas, I have three children, and and, uh, it became uh, important not only to learn from them, which I did a lot, but um, to provide them with the kind of support where they're not compromised. And I know that the car seats and the children's containers and uh, their toys, uh, one of the toys I wouldn't get my kids was a big wheel. Um, I'd rather have them on a tricycle. And, uh, of course, I got teased tremendously, you know, of you know that I wouldn't buy them a, a, a big tyke. But I didn't because at that time the only style there was was one in which you tucked your pelvis to make the wheel to, to activate the the pedals. And so I actually have written an article called How to Help Children Develop Core Awareness and Avoid Chronic Pain because I think chronic pain begins in these early ways that we understand movement, that we experience ourselves in movement. And when we provide uh, chairs and, and trikes and that are not uh, pelvic savvy, that aren't, aren't so as savvy and, and, and healthy, then the child can only move in a dysfunctional way. And yeah. I'm curious what you have to say about that or anything you'd like to comment or Absolutely. about children. Well, you know, around, this is something I feel very, I have three children as well. Mine are older now, 21, 16, and 13. But I teach many young parents, and um, I think it's not, and it's not too much to say horrified by what is happening in the children's furniture industry. You know, all the little car seats that are and umbrella strollers and so on that are basically training our kids to have a tucked pelvis. And so that when they go to school and sit down, they're used to that shape and they sit on their tails and, and, and then slouch forward for the most part. And 
it's it's I hate to think what's coming by way of musculoskeletal problems is going to be worse than what we have now if we don't check this. And so I am working very hard. My next book is going to be about children. Um, and um, I'm also talking to, you know, we, one of the things that is sorely needed is some furniture and some um, gadgets to help, to, like simple chairs and so on, to help. So I'm actually in conversation with manufacturers and so on and designers and towards this end. And um, I, I, I pride myself on having an approach that is very product light for the most part. I like people to just stand on their own two feet and not need a lot of gadgets, but there is need for simple things like good shoes and good clothing and good furniture. And so I have made some headway in that direction. Um, In about a month, we'll have our first product, which is a stretch-sit cushion, which will help people elongate their backs no matter what chair they are sitting in. And um, I want one. I want. I want one. I'll. I'll take it to my workshops. <laughs> I'll experiment with it. Go. Give it to my husband. Absolutely. And take it to it's. It's. It's, a, it's. It's come out very cool. So it's going to be out in about a month to six weeks, and um. But then we're also experimenting with some other um implements because they really are needed. We have to counter the current. Um, gush of badly designed, um, misguided uh, tools that we expose our kids to and that do cause damage. So this one is a, an area make... I feel very strongly on. Yes, go one ahead. Of the things I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to get to um, in this hour, because I think it's... Um, I think it's the I think in your book is the only time I've seen it. So this is this is new territory for me and I I'm actually excited to hear more about it. I do I work a lot with the feet because uh not only is the pelvic basin or keystone but how weight transfers through the feet play a big part in the supple dynamic psoas. And so when the feet have issues, uh, the shoes you were mentioning, I talk a lot about shoes and, and what I consider a, a savvy, a psoas savvy shoe. And I, I don't like a bossy shoe. Um, I like a shoe that can, can bend in half, that, that is a, a responsive shoe that doesn't tell you what to do. And But one of the things that you work a lot with in your book is this kidney shape. And you go and you show these amazing pictures of little babies' feet and and then adult feet. And, and I'd like you to talk about this kidney-shaped foot, which shoes, feet are, and what, how, why is this so important? Well, it is the most efficient way of reworking the architecture of the entire leg. Uh, including the foot. So I claim that the natural shape for a human foot is kidney bean shaped. If you look at little kids' footprints and so on in the sand, they are bean shaped. And then in some of the cultures where they walk barefoot on natural surfaces, um, they tend to retain that shape into adulthood. And so I think it's it's a natural shape for adult humans as well. And in our culture, unfortunately, all our feet get to meet are the insides of shoes, which tend to be flat, and concrete and asphalt surfaces. And because of that, there isn't much opportunity for the for the arch muscles and for the leg muscles to do a normal set of exercises just in everyday activities. So we basically have underdeveloped feet. I mean, when we start out, when we're kids, we have this little grip reflex. You know, if you tickle the underside of a kid's foot, they they grasp. And that originally was probably a reflex to help not fall out of trees. You know, it was when we were tree climbing. Um, it's very useful to be able to grasp as a reflex, you know, in case of falls. But that reflex has stayed 
in the five and a half million years that we've been bipedal. And I think it's because it is still useful. And now it's for grasping contours on the ground and pushing the ground sort of back as you go forward. And, but, you know, if there are no contours, if all our kids get to meet is cement and, you know, um, then they don't get to do that and they lose that reflex. It never does evolve into becoming a whole cascade of, of muscular contractions that, that, that goes with normal locomotion. So unfortunately, we just don't do those things and our feet, we treat our feet Kind of like prostheses, you know, like like uh, and I mean we have four layers of muscles in there, and they're they're like padding, and so I think it's important um, to regain some of that, and so the kidney bean shape is sort of the first step towards that, and what's so handy about that bean shape is that as you twist in the heel and it automatically externally rotates your entire leg. You know, your knee goes out. In fact, you can rotate out the knee to help the heel come in. They sort of help each other happen. But, you know, rotating and swiveling, pivoting in the heel as you fix the front of the foot on the floor and then planting it back onto the ground helps the whole leg externally rotate. And as you know... If the leg is externally rotated, there's room, much better room, for the pelvis to settle in its natural position. You know, a lot of people have problems with their pelvis partially because their legs are kind of in the way. And so you could you could focus on externally rotating the legs and then separately on working the arch muscles of the foot and so on. But this kidney bean shape maneuver sort of in one fell swoop does it all. And that's why I like it so much and I emphasize it so much. So it's a fabulous idea and it takes me to the idea of what you call uh, uh, hip hinging. And I also do yeah. a lot of hip hinging in my workshops because um, I'm uh, – for a healthy functional psoas, there has to be articulation at the ball and socket joint. And the psoas goes right over the ball and socket joint, and uh, it's the only muscle to attach the leg to the spine. And so it's, it really has a lot to do with both the leg swinging through space, but also the capacity <clears throat> excuse me, to, to bend. And one of the things I see that injures the psoas uh, inadvertently, is bending forward. So you were saying how you're, um, you offer yoga classes. Well, a lot of the people yeah. who end up in my doorstep have injured themselves in yoga because they've learned to do uh, a, a forward bend by actually stretching uh, or injuring the SI joints because they're not hinging, they're, they're bending. And right. just as they're rounding, in your book, they're rounding, and that they've even sometimes been taught to do that as a way to articulate or separate the um, toxic or the spine for Kundalini. And what happens when one injures the SI joints, in my experience, is that the psoas has to take over as a way of uh, as protection for injuring the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, they end up at my doorstep because now they have psoas problems. But really, they have SI joint problems, which really has to do behind that of them not articulating or hip hinging. So I'd love for you to speak a little bit about hip hinging. And you have great photographs. Aren't they they're great? Wonderful. Yes, they're no, fabulous. I like to one what it really looks to yeah. What it, what it really looks. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I particularly love the one that's at the um, uh, frontispiece of the chapter. Yes, and that's me too. a woman in in Burkina Faso. So this is a woman I watched for hours and hours, and she is gathering water chestnuts that grow underwater. And so so she and and the, her buddy, okay, they're in their fifties. And they come out when the water is somewhat warmed up by about 10 in the morning. And they spend seven to nine hours 
hinged like that, bent over all the way to whether they can, where they can gather these fruit that grow underwater. And they, they will spend maybe 15 minutes, you know, sort of walking around, bent over, to look for the fruit. And then they hinge back up and they sort of look at the landscape in a leisurely fashion for a few seconds and they go back down. And, you know, this is unthinkable for most people in our culture. You know, we just can't imagine bending over for seven to nine hours, you know, whether it's in a rice paddy or it's gathering water chestnuts. And these women do it so effortlessly and elegantly and 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 healthfully, you know, it actually benefits them. And that's what I teach, that if bending is done poorly, it is one of the most damaging things you can do. And if it is done well, then you almost, then it correlates very strongly with good back health. So it is a big lesson. In my course, it is, I teach it as lesson four. You know, after they've learned to sit well and lie well and lie on their side and stack sit and stand and they've learned their inner corset, then they're ready. So now they have their spine in a really good alignment. They know how to have good length in their spine, good shape in their spine, and now we're ready to transport that well-lengthened and well-shaped spine at, from the hinge, so the spine shape stays exactly the same. And then they hinge forward at the hips. And at some point, if they're going deeply enough, the entire body kind of settles. I call it nesting between the legs because it's a very comfortable feeling. Ease, there's ease in it. And you sort of settle between the legs. And here again, only if the legs are externally rotated, right? So you want the legs externally rotated and somewhat split apart. And then that entire torso, the lower, the pelvis and so on, sort of settles between the legs and you can stay there for hours, it feels good, and it does all kinds of good things for you, like stretch your hamstring, stretch your external hip rotator muscles, give your long back muscles, the erector spinae, gives them a good workout, gives the rhomboids a workout, and it does no damage at all to the discs or to the ligaments in the spine or to any other structure. So it's just win, 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 you know? So it's it's a it's a very exciting thing to teach people. Well, the erector spinae muscles are one of the counter muscles to the psoas. So when they have tone, mm. then the psoas has more capacity for stretch. True. And, uh, so that's a wonderful a, a wonderful dynamic. Well, we don't have a whole lot of more time, but I I wanted to um, I wanted to uh, open it up if anybody has any questions they'd like to ask ask uh, Esther people just anyone can speak up and if you're muted if I asked you to mute star six the way you unmute is to also hit star six I sent out emails asking people to to hit star six yeah you don't yeah that that well if they yeah I hear someone Hello, ladies. This is Pam Bradford, and I'm in Maple Valley, Washington. Hi there. Hi there. And I'm on Esther's website. I've been struggling with uh, what I thought was many different things, and it's turning out to be probably an iliopsoas issue probably for a year. I um, I had a thing called spondylolisthesis in my childhood yeah. and had to be fused because my spine was not connected. Okay. And I have scoliosis. Okay. So is, are your classes something that a person that I could take? Absolutely. Um, we have people with spondies, as they call them, spondylolisthesis, come in all the time. And you, yours has been fused, so there isn't any instability there. And scoliosis is something that's particularly lends particularly well to my techniques because lengthening really helps reverse some of the scoliosis. Now, some of it is, you know, maybe genetic, and it's in the shape of the bones, and that's not something anyone can change. But what usually happens is that with 
um, gravity's effect on the extra curves and not knowing exactly, you know, the best ways to sit and so on, those curves tend to get exaggerated with the years. And those effects can be reversed. And so stretch sitting and stretch lying are really powerful techniques. Also the inner corset, stretch lying on the side, those are all powerful, powerful techniques to help reverse some of the scoliosis. And so people come in, we have people fly in from Kentucky and from New York City and all over to take our courses. We teach intensive courses for the out-of-towners, and people come in for three days and take two lessons a day, or they come and take one lesson a day for six days. And either way, they get the entire course, and people, too, without exception so far, have been delighted that they found this and that they came to learn. I have a sister that lives in Mill Valley. Is that somewhere near you? Yeah, that's just um, that's north Which of valley? Ca- Castro Valley? Mill yeah, Valley. No, she said Mill Valley. I'd like to be able Mill to open valley. it up for other questions. Is there anybody else who wanted to ask a question? I have one. This is um, Kim Thompson in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I got your book last year, and thank you. It's been fabulous. And um, anytime I go traveling now, I embarrass my husband because I'm usually taking pictures of tourists to get (laughs) bodies. Um, But I teach yoga and Feldenkrais classes, and it's been really revelational to me to use some of your techniques in just standing upright. I find I'm much more comfortable, a lot less fidgety. Good. Sometimes when I try to present um, standing techniques to my yoga students, they get it, and sometimes they just look bewildered. And I'm guessing that you do that later in the program after they've already found their sit bones with stretch sitting and and some other things. Correct. So we usually get to standing in the third lesson. And, yeah, what, what was your question? Any tips or... Yeah, tips on how to get them to, because they tend to tuck under and then lift their chin up too much. There's a real military position. Yes. I've seen that. In the yoga world, it seems to be pretty common. And the way I work with that is to to, to direct them and then have them look at themselves in the mirror sideways. And then they're astonished because they feel like they're leaning forward but they're not, and they see yeah, it for themselves. And, yeah. So that I think that's a really good way to do it. Okay. Yeah, I do the same thing because when people are stacked or over themselves, as I say, get over yourself. And when you get over yourself, your psoas is released, and people will say, oh, but I feel like I'm I'm falling forward. And actually, their their body weight is more forward in the sense that then this psoas is free. But as soon as they look in the mirror, they realize that they're actually standing upright. Yeah. They're no longer leaning back. They're no longer I have falling. done that sometimes with taking pictures with a digital camera before and after, and they kind of look at the before and go, oh, wow, that you know that it's all curved and they don't really like how they look. And the second one, they feel very odd, but when they look at the picture, they they don't look crazy. But it, it still it feels so unnatural to them that um, I'm it having got, it, it looks like they've put on someone else's clothes. You know, they, they don't, yeah, yeah. They don't. I have people to say, you know, look in the mirror and say, oh, my goodness, this is an optical illusion. I feel I feel like an orangutan. I hear this all the time. Most people feel like they're leaning way forward by the time they are, you know, we're, we're done. Um, so, yeah, it is, that is one of the great you know, sort of ahas or um, fun points to bring people to. Let's take one more question. Is there someone who would like to ask one more question? Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, my name is Lily. I'm from Connecticut. Hi. And uh, hi. I uh, I have an issue with um, my hamstring being sort of an old torn injury at the attachment. So yeah. I find that actually lifting the tailbone back kind of exacerbates that, and so. Yeah. Pulling on, yeah. Yeah, so I think what's happened is that I've now gone to tucking, 
And that has given me an SI joint problem. Other issues, yeah. Uh-huh. Is there anything you can recommend to help Absolutely. that guy? Absolutely. So once some of your language was, you know, um, pu- pushing the tail out behind. So that sounds a little too active. You don't really want to push your backside backwards. You want to relax in the front and let the pelvis rest in its um, in its neutral, natural position, which will be antiverted. You don't want to stick your butt back, okay? That would be too much. So that's the first comment I have. Mm-hmm. Also, if that takes you too far and it's inflaming your hamstring, then you want to do something between what's ideal and where you're currently, okay? So do something in between so you're not suddenly stretching the hamstrings a whole bunch. It is a big problem when you have a tight muscle that is inflamed. How do you get it? You, don't, you can't aggressively stretch it because then the attachment inflames more, but yet you want it to be stretched. So my favorite thing in that sort of situation is acupuncture because you get into the belly of the muscle um, and you relax it from the inside out, and then it's not pulling so hard on its attachment. So I would strongly recommend you supplement with acupuncture, and then when you create some slack in the muscle, then you want to pick it up in a gentle fashion just by you know, allowing your pelvis to antivert, not pushing the butt back, but just assuming the natural position, and then... Between those two measures, you should be able to create length and maintain the length and then let the attachment heal at the same time. Great. Thank you. Welcome. So I want to thank everybody for for joining us. This has been been great. And before we close, I wanted to uh, Esther to have you please uh, tell people how they can uh, go to your website again. It's www. In the book, it's different than you mentioned. So yeah, you have I have two, two ways. You can get there with egwellness.com. EG is for my name, Esther Gokley. So it's egwellness.com. Or it can also be the easier to remember one for some people as well, stackedback.com. And well, we would love... Yeah, and we'd love to hear from people. Be in touch. Email us, esther at egwellness.com reaches me. And I'd love to hear. I mean, if yoga teachers out there, you know, using these techniques and stuff, please, and taking pictures, do be in touch with us. And and we can set up some little bit of correspondence. That would be great. Um, This is, they're all in the same um, challenge together. So it's delightful to hear that you've, you know, Liz, I thank you so much because you've created, you know, all this interest that is interest in a healthy direction, which unfortunately is quite rare still. So it, it is. I, that's there, why I feel sometimes I'm on an uphill embarkment here and, and people look at me and I'm asking them to put their butts out. And so to have a book that I can say, look, Look here, see? And I think for all of you who are teachers and therapists, when you begin to teach people how to sit correctly or or inviting them to do so to help uh, support the work that you're doing with them um, or hip hinging, any of those ideas, whatever you call them, to have this great book, it's Eight Steps to a Pain-Free Back, Remember When It Didn't Hurt, you can show people pictures of what, what you're talking about, and all of a sudden, there's that, once again, gut response that says, oh, oh, I get it, okay. And also, you're seeing normal people moving in a way that looks delicious. And so that beauty, the beauty of the human body is you've, you've really done a nice job of selecting photos that, that that remind us of how gorgeous the body is in in very simple movements. <clears throat> You know, everyday movements that many of us feel are um, laborious or difficult yeah. or frustrating. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah, it's, been, um, have a gorge, it's been very gorge. gratifying because yeah. ever since the book has been published, people are learning so much better. So that's been great. So I want to tell people how to replay this if you'd like to come back and replay it again or share it with someone else. You replay... Um, the replay number is seven one two four three two 
1698. And then you use your same access code. And that will take you back around. And then also, um, I'll be putting it up as a podcast. And so you can actually download it on your computer and listen to it that way. And it'll be up in a in a day or two, and, and you'll have access to listening or sharing it with other people, this interview. So thank you very much, Esther, for coming on and taking this time. I know you're a busy woman, and I, I look forward to coming to your clinic over the hill and uh, meeting you. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you, and goodbye to everybody. Bye.